Crossway Church Sermon Audio. But does the Bible ever unsettle you? If it hasn't already, it likely will unsettle us today. We don't like to consider judgment. Uh, In many ways, the Bible is a foreign book. It was originally composed on the other side of the world in languages that most of us have never spoken or learned. Its most recent writings are nearly two millennia old, and its oldest writings are another 1,500 years older than that, and based on histories that happened even before that. And so when we read the Bible, and when we read the Old Testament especially, we're journeying to an unfamiliar place. As the British novelist L.P. Hartley wrote, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. That's true, isn't it? And how easy it is for us to look down on the past and to scoff at its supposed ignorance and barbarity. And of course, we can be sure that if Jesus should delay his return for another 500 years, that we will receive the same treatment from 26th century Americans, or whatever this land is called in 500 years, as they look down on our primitive medicines and lifestyles and the things that we find to be oh so important and they find to be utter nonsense. So, returning to our question, does the Bible ever unsettle you? Do you read God's word and wonder how what you're reading lines up with what you think about God and about life? That's where our understanding of just what the Bible is makes all the difference. Is this book a historical curiosity? Is it a collection of human religious writings and musings? Or is it the very word of God, his authoritative record and interpretation of human history and his role in redeeming a world marked by sin? If this book is merely human, then we can dismiss it or ignore the inconvenient parts. But if it's God's word, then we have to learn from and submit to All of it, including the difficult passages. In his book, The God Delusion, the atheist Richard Dawkins demonstrates what happens when we sit above the Bible and render judgment upon it as a human invention. He provides his readers with a characteristic complaint against theism in general and especially against biblical religion. So in discussing Joshua in our text for today, he writes, Whether true or not, the Bible is held up as the source of our morality. And the Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. The Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but it is not the sort of book you should give your children to form their morals. That sounds clever, doesn't it? The story that we're about to read is just like many other stories in the history of humankind where the strong overcome and annihilate the weak. What's worse in the Bible, they do it in the name of God. For Dawkins, God is a racist, infanticidal, genocidal, capriciously malevolent bully. And here's the rub. As with many objections, if you grant the presupposition then the conclusions follow. If there is no God, then the text we're about to study is disgusting and morally reprehensible. Of course, if there is no God, the basis for making that judgment grows awfully cloudy and weak. 
If there's no God, then you certainly do not want to give this book to your children to form their morals. But if there is a God, and this book reveals him to us, then what? What do we make of this text and of the judgment and extermination of the Canaanites? Well, today's text is filled with judgment and death. It's a very sobering text. It may be a text that we've been inclined to avoid. It doesn't present a very nice picture of God or his people. And we live in a time and a place that places a premium on niceness. So this is an uncomfortable text for us. We cannot honor God or his word if we don't take this text at face value. We need to recognize that every age has its sacred cows, things that everyone assumes and believes uncritically. And we often don't recognize how those things affect us quite profoundly. Like fish and water, we are affected deeply by our cultural values and assumptions. We need to recognize that our cultural assumptions dispose us. They prejudice us to be embarrassed by this text at best and to be offended by it at worst. So we need to ask. Could it be that cultural definitions of niceness and tolerance have so affected us that we've settled for a false image of God? Could it be that our own desires to be acceptable and that our cultural prejudice, that when someone is offended, it must be the offender who is at fault, that that it's always wrong to hurt someone's feelings? Could it be that these things have led us to violate the first two of the Ten Commandments and to craft a God in our own image rather than to see and worship God for who he is? Could it it be that we see God at best as a therapist or a counselor but not truly as a savior because we've reduced him to a rather meek and inoffensive figure who wrings his hand at the troubles of the world and by implication at the real troubles in our lives? One task of the Christian and part of the renewing of our minds is to take our prejudices and assumptions, the things we've been raised in, the atmosphere that we breathe in every day, and take it to the Lord in his word and to submit humbly to it, to be instructed by it. These texts are hard in several ways. They present practices that were just specific to Israel at this point in their history. They present God's wrath and judgment in stark and uncompromising terms. And they're hard because they require us to think and to pray and to wrestle. And they likely require us to repent. Because in coming to God on his terms, we may find that our assumptions aren't true. And if we do, repentance is the proper response. If we have misunderstood or misrepresented God, then we must repent if we're going to go know life and truth and peace. So as I said, this is a hard text. It's an unsettling text. I've wrestled with this text quite a bit, not to understand it or its message, because I think it's relatively straightforward. It's not particularly difficult in its structure or its concepts. I've wrestled with it because while the command to Christians here is pretty straightforward, pretty clear, the context and the assumptions that we can bring to this text can neuter it and drain it of its God-intended force. So here's the message that I see in today's text. Maybe. 
Can you get that, John? I'll tell you, it'll come up at some point. Your holy God calls you to persevere in obedient faith. Your holy God calls you to persevere in obedient faith. Every one of those words is loaded with implications and application. And we're going to look at some of those today in this context of God's judgment on the peoples of Canaan executed through war that he commands his people to wage. So here's the question I want us to keep at the forefront of our minds today. Who is this God? Who is this God? What is he like? What do his actions and values reveal about his character? Do they line up with what you think of when you think about God? Or said another way, do you know God as he is? Or do you have a false image of God in your mind and heart? If we're going to benefit from God's word, we need to come humbly and sit under its teaching. If we're going to appreciate the mercy and the grace that we receive only in Jesus Christ, we have to understand those things through the light that scripture provides for us. So we're going to look at God's holy judgment on the Canaanites today under three points. First, we'll look at his judgment on human rebellion. And then secondly, his judgment on human might. And then finally, we'll consider his inspired interpretation and application of of these events to the Israelites and then also to us. So his judgment from divine perspective. So let's look at our first point, holy judgment against human rebellion. If the Bible is to be believed, and of course, if it isn't to be believed, then why are we wasting our time here? But if the Bible is to be believed, then this world is created by God. And every person in it is created in his image to know and to worship and to glorify God. Every person is his. He's the creator and judge. We are the creatures. All lands and seas are his. All worship is his. That's the foundation for understanding the judgment to come in these chapters. In reading the Bible story up to this point, we will have noticed foreshadowings of what we're going to study today. In Genesis 15, 16, in the context of the covenant that God's making with Abram, he said, he's told that his descendants will return to possess the land in the future after the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. So about 600 years before this, God's saying, not yet, but one day, the iniquity of the Amorites will be complete, and then, then your descendants will possess the land. And then in Leviticus 18.27, as he's detailing the sexual abominations that God forbids, Moses tells Israel, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Again, this presupposes that these people are made in God's image, that God says what's right and wrong. That when these people were performing these acts, they were violating God's character, God's command. They were violating the purpose for which God created them. And they were incurring His judgment and wrath. And then in Deuteronomy 20, 16-18, Moses relays the Lord's command to Israel as they enter the land. He says, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you, for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. 
but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So these are the holy judgments of God. In the Bible, God is always presented as the true Lord and King over all. Thus, he is the true judge over all. Other false gods lure people away from him and into immorality, but our God is good and holy, and he never countenances rebellion. His justice is always perfect and righteous, and it is incredibly, incredibly patient. It's also no respecter of persons. God doesn't play favorites. He never just excuses sin. He never overlooks blindly. Sin is always punished without exception. Sin is always punished without exception. Now, I know in light of God's mercy, that raises questions for us. So please keep those questions in mind as we continue. But sin is always punished. There will not be a sin that is not punished. All sin. So as we turn to this text, we begin with a brief note on geography. We need to understand that Gibeon, which we looked at two weeks ago in Joshua 9, was a key city at the midpoint of this region. And so as Israel defeated Jericho and Ai, and then as Gibeon had allied themselves with them, they had gained the whole middle region. They had separated north from south in the land that they were sent to conquer. So that helps us to understand some of the fear of the peoples of this land. They had heard of Israel's defeat of Egypt far away, as Rahab testified to in Joshua 2. And then they had seen the defeat of Jericho and Ai in their own backyard. And so in chapter 10, we read of five kings who unite against Israel. Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem hears about both Ai and Gideon, and in verse 2, he feared greatly. Gibeon was a royal city, we're told, with many mighty warriors greater than Ai. And so when they, so rather than repent and surrender to the Israelites, these kings decide that they're going to coalesce and attack Gibeon and try and regain that land and regain their defensive advantage. So as they're under attack, Gibeon calls Joshua to honor their, co- their covenant and the Israelites respond. In verse 8, the Lord tells Joshua, and just note in this text, The first thing that God always says to his people. So verse 8, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Israel marches around 12 miles overnight, which is, you know, we don't march anymore, right? 12 miles, that's exhausting. And then they immediately launch a surprise attack against these kings. But the decisive blows are landed by the Lord, who throws them into confusion and throws large stones down from heaven upon their heads. As verse 11 tells us, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. But the judgment's not yet complete. And so beginning in verse 12, Joshua prays that the sun and the moon might stand still so they can continue to battle and take vengeance upon their enemies. Scholars, of course, debate the precise meaning of these events. Scholars will debate anything if you pay them. Uh, We need not bother ourselves about that debate. It, it, It boils down to this. Is it really too much to think 
That the God who created all things and who sustains all things by the word of his power cannot set aside, can't freeze the sun and the moon in the sky for a day to accomplish his purposes. That's not taxing to him in any way. Ordinarily, if the sun and moon were to stop in the sky, it would wreak havoc on our world. Ordinarily, water does not turn into wine. And God does not become man. And men don't rise from the dead. And our God is not constrained by what we consider to be ordinary or normal or the natural course of events. Those things that we call the laws of nature are in many ways poorly termed because they're not rules by which God is limited. They don't exist outside of God somehow. They are reflections of his character and the order and purpose with which he upholds all things in his power. If he chooses to change the typical way that things happen for a time for his special purposes, it doesn't put him out at all. He is the almighty God. So part of what's interesting about the narrative here is that it doesn't marvel at this cosmic wonder in the skies. It marvels, verse 14, that there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So the marvel is that God honored Joshua's prayer. Our God isn't removed and distant from his people. He's not disinterested in the minutiae of our life. He has ordained the minutiae of our lives and he means to meet us in them. He means for us to walk through every circumstance of our lives, including the most crushing and overwhelming and relentless challenges that we face, to walk through those things with faith looking to him, trusting in him, and thus glorifying him. We'll see that repeatedly in these two chapters. Joshua and Israel act in ways inconsistent with normal reasoning. It isn't normal military strategy to march overnight, all night, to be exhausted before you attack a seasoned and united foe. But instead of going with normal reasoning, they think and act with faith. They do it because they trust their sovereign God. As Dale Ralph Davis has written, divine sovereignty creates confidence, which calls forth our effort even to the point of reckless abandon. God's sovereignty is not a doctrine that shackles us, but a reality that liberates us. Not a cloud that stifles, but an elixir that invigorates. We have to remember that it was God who led Israel to this point. He led them to cross the Jordan, which cut off any easy means of retreat. He then led them to circumcise themselves, which left them weakened and exposed to their enemies. His providence included the defeat, their defeat at Ai. Had they defeated Jericho and they defeated Ai and then handled the Gibeonites faithfully, it could well be that the rest of the Canaanites would have just surrendered. They would have seen the writing on the wall. But we'll see later how that wasn't God's plan for his people. God works in our lives through many circumstances and challenges and sufferings. His uh, appreciating and understanding his sovereignty is the only way that we can engage with those things. Some of those things are occasioned by our own sin. Some of those things are occasioned by the sins of others. And some are just the fruit of living in a fallen world. And through them all, the great challenge of Joshua looms large. Choose this day whom you will serve. Do you believe in God? 
Do you believe that he is with you and for you? Do you believe that he loves and forgives those who come to him? Do you believe that he has grace for your every struggle, for your every day, for your every moment? Or is faith in God a sideshow as you focus on health or money or security or whatever gives you comfort and joy in life? Where do we look for help in this life? What is the salvation that we most desire? When things are hard and our backs are against the wall, our thoughts and actions reveal our true hopes. Where do we look in those moments? The Lord is calling us to look to Him alone, to fix our hope on Him. When things are hard, the easy response, the normal response, is to look anywhere else and to latch on whatever we think will provide a quick and relatively satisfying answer. But the message of Joshua is that faith requires God's people to persevere, to obey and trust God, and to look to Him at all times. It is not easy. And it is precisely how we glorify Him. A few more notes here on chapter 10. In verses 16 to 27, we read of the gruesome deaths of these rebellious kings. They hide themselves in a cave, and Joshua has stones rolled against the opening so they can't escape. And then later they come back and they bring out the caves and Joshua has his men put their feet on their necks on the ground. Verse 25, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. They kill them and hang them on trees until evening. And then from verses 28 to 43, we read repeatedly of Joshua's extermination of everyone in these cities. In Makeda, in Libna, in Gezer, in Eglon, in Hebron, and in Debir. He devotes them all to destruction. And the Lord is given credit. Verse 42, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel and gave them all the land. And then the Israelites returned to camp at Gilgal. Now these are not sentimentally satisfying verses. But this is the Bible's clear-eyed description of the wrath of God. This is full judgment. No one survives. All of these peoples that had persisted in rebellion for centuries against the Lord are judged and executed. There is no mercy. So let's make two notes of application here. First, none of us is called to similar actions today. No modern nation carries the role of ancient Israel, and that includes modern Israel. No modern nation carries the role of ancient Israel. We're not called to possess a particular land. We're not called to execute God's judgment on his enemies. The change in the nature of the people of God from the old covenant to the new means our kingdom and citizenship is spiritual. So the application of these stories is to our battle against sin and Satan and not to any other realm. A full explanation of that would require more time than I have, but I want to state the obvious. Christians are not called to holy war against physical enemies, but against spiritual enemies. Read Ephesians 6. Second, this judgment is typological. It's a picture of the judgment to come 
against all human rebellion. It's been a recurring heresy throughout church history to say that the God of the Old Testament was angry and tribal and bloodthirsty, but the God of the New Testament is loving and meek and mild. And both caricatures are false. The God of the Old Testament shows mercy. In Joshua, he shows mercy to Rahab and to the Gibeonites. Those who were by birth outside of Israel are brought into God's people through mercy as they respond in repentance and faith. And he judges those who rebel regardless of their nationality. And so here again in Joshua, Achan the Israelite and his family are executed for their rebellion. God's mercy is a holy mercy. And though Jesus came first in humility as a baby and to save and not to condemn, he is not still a baby. He will come again. And when he comes, it will not be as a baby, but as a fierce warrior riding on a white horse, leading the hosts of heaven in fearsome battle. Our God is the same yesterday and today and forever. So lest we forget, Revelation 19, 11 to 21 provides the picture for us. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Those are fearsome verses. Are those verses in your Bible? And more to the point, are they in your theology? When you think of Jesus, is that part of what comes to mind when you consider who he is? As gruesome as this conquest of Canaan is, and it is gruesome, the final judgment on that day will be far more fearsome and awesome and horrific because the stakes are ultimate. Eternal Destinies are at stake. God is holy. And sin is cosmic treason. And judgment is coming. And if we would rightly understand and rejoice in the mercy of God, we must understand what we're being saved from and what we're being saved to. 
If we minimize sin, we distort the character of God. We minimize the glory of the cross. And we diminish the comfort and the confidence that are ours in Jesus Christ. If we minimize sin, we will not repent and know the truth of the forgiveness and grace that come to us through Jesus. If we minimize sin, we will not walk in the obedience that comes as a fruit of repentance and faith. This isn't about fearing God so that we shape up. It's about seeing God and seeing ourselves accurately so that we experience His great salvation for what it is and not as a pale and deluded and watered down imitation. God is great and He is good. He saves sinners. All who turn from their rebellion and trust in Him find that the judgment, this judgment and more that we so richly deserve has been laid upon another, upon a substitute. So the judgment of the Canaanites is meant to be a warning to us. And though it was gruesome, the judgment they experienced at the hands of Joshua and Israel pales in comparison to standing before the throne of God and giving account for every thought and every desire and every word and every deed that we have ever had or done. If we would understand the love and mercy of God, we must understand it in light of what we truly deserve. No human stands on his own merits before God. And everyone, everyone who is in Christ who has received real forgiveness and real righteousness from a real Savior, truly stands secure in love and peace. It is an amazing, amazing salvation. So in light of this great salvation, your holy God calls you to persevere in obedient faith. And so we've seen briefly the judgment that comes against a people who persisted against rebellion and in rebellion against God for centuries. So now we're turning to Holy judgment against human might, which is the first part of chapter 11. So after the conquest of the southern tribes, Israel returns to Gilgal to prepare to attack the north. And in 11.1, we read of Jabin, the king of Hazor, who sends to the kings of the north and unites them against Israel. And these kings aren't just united in rebellion. They form a truly impressive coalition. Verses 4 to 5 describe this for us. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Again, remembering that this is the ancient past, we need to recognize that besides the great horde of troops like sand on the seashore, these kings also had horses and chariots, which were to ancient warfare what tanks were to World War II. So Israel was outnumbered and facing a far superior foe technologically. They were at great disadvantage. This is human might gathered against the Lord and against his people. So again, the Lord makes a great promise to his people. And we see again that the Lord means us to be oriented to and sustained by his promises. Look, in the trials and sufferings of your life, you're getting news from all over the place, right? And that news wants to take, to rob your faith. 
It wants to turn your eyes off of the Lord. What voice is loudest in your ears, in your heart, when you suffer, when you struggle, when others wrong you? What voice is loudest? The Lord means for His voice to be loudest. He orients us and He sustains us by His promises. It's not that your circumstances aren't true. They're just not the ultimate truth. There are greater truths at play than your sorrow and suffering. God means you to be oriented to and sustained by His promises. And we see that over and over again in these texts. So God gives a great promises to his people to be their deliverer. Verse 6, And the Lord said to Joshua, again, what's the first thing? Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them, slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And so in response, Israel uses actually a wise military tactic. Verses 7 to 9, So Joshua and all his warriors come suddenly against them by the waters of Merim and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Mishrafoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So again, understanding that geography helps us here. Merim was in Upper Galilee. It's about 4,000 feet above sea level, and it's not a place that's conducive to chariot maneuvers. Had Israel waited until they were attacked on the plains, they would have been on even greater disadvantage. So they come upon them suddenly. As Davis has written about these verses, just because Yahweh promises victory, verse 6, is not reason not to use one's brains, verse 7. So faith in God may not line up with worldly wisdom, but it is still firmly grounded in reality. Let me say a word about that. I was raised in churches where faith was often equated with the denial of reality. I'm not sick because by his stripes I am healed. I'm not poor because I'm a child of the king and he has the cattle on a thousand hills. And faith was some kind of magic formula that if you could just summon up enough of it, you would unlock the promises of God. You'd walk in victory. Friends, that's not true faith. True faith never denies reality. What marks true faith is seeing God in the midst of our reality. It's a fundamental honesty about ourselves, about our plight, about our God, and about His grace. It's hoping in God. And then when we act, we act looking to Him. Israel deployed wise military strategy out of faith in God. And if God had not been their commander, they would have failed miserably. We've seen that repeatedly throughout Joshua. Israel was at a disadvantage at Jericho. They used foolish military tactics. Really, you're just going to march around like that's going to do anything? Right? And they defeated them. They conquered them. They were a great advantage at Ai. They disobeyed God. And they were defeated. They act foolishly again in the south and they win. And then they go against a far superior enemy in the north and God delivers them. And all throughout, there's one message. God is the mighty warrior of Israel. God is the one who saves and sustains his people. He's the one who leads us into triumph. External circumstances in our lives are never decisive. The crux of the issue is always faithfulness to God. 
faith in God? Is he good? Can he be trusted? Will I look to him? So would Israel look to God or would they hope in themselves? Would they obey his commands or act on their own? And always the Lord was calling them to place themselves squarely and wholly in his hands and to trust him for the outcome. And that's what he still calls his people to today. Are you looking to the Lord in the midst of your trials? Faith in God doesn't remove our troubles. It doesn't mean that everything will go well in this life. In many respects, faith makes things harder. Because then we're fighting sin. And we're fighting against the world's values. That's part of where this passage applies to us. But for those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good in Jesus Christ, faith is the way to honor such a great Savior. It's the way we make clear to the world that Jesus is better. He's greater than anything else. He's better than health and he's better than family. He's better than money. He's better than ease. He's better than anything else I could want. Those things are good. They're not bad things. Those are good things. And when we have them, we should rejoice and thank God. But they are not our ultimate good. They are not the source of good. Our ultimate good is in God alone. And faith is how we make that clear to everyone. To ourselves, to our brothers and sisters, to the world who watches and wonders, and to the Lord himself. Faith glorifies God. It glorifies God by persevering in obedience. It glorifies God by echoing the words of Peter. Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I love Eugene Peterson's phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. So helpful. A long obedience in the same direction. That's faith. And it is glorious. One more point here from our text on faith. Uh, Modern commentators often sneer at how Israel hamstrung the horses and burned the chariots. Stupid Israelites, they say. They didn't even know how to use this technology to their advantage. It's like giving a smartphone to your one-year-old, right? They're just going to break it. They don't know how to use it. Was that truly the point? Were the Israelites just a bunch of military Luddites? Well, of course not. They're obeying God explicitly. He, he could have commanded them to keep and use that technology, but instead he was calling them to rely on him, to not lean on anything that would take their reliance away from him. It calls to mind Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. but We trust in the name of the Lord our God. That was to be Israel's song of deliverance. And then continuing on, verses 10 to 15 summarize the full destruction of these peoples. Israel slay them all, and Joshua is commended for his obedience. Verse 15, he left nothing undone that the Lord had commanded Moses. Israel obeyed God, acted in faith, and defeated their enemies. The combined might of human rebellion against God was unable to stop any of his purposes or to stay his hand of judgment. That should sober us. God is never mocked. So in light of that, our holy God calls us to persevere in obedient faith. And that brings us to our final point. As we look to pull this together and to consider the Lord's perspective and see again what the Lord calls us to today. So it's holy judgment in divine perspective. Besides being a foreign book and an ancient book, the Bible is also a highly condensed book. And that can be... Misleading. We might think that all these things took place in a matter of hours or days or even weeks, but that, that's not the case. Look at verse 18. 
Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. A long time. Do you see the call to perseverance? How long do we need to obey God? How long do we need to hope in Him? For eternity. For eternity. As long as life endures in this age, that hope, that endurance, that obedience will be a battle. A worthwhile battle, a fulfilling battle, but a battle nonetheless. And when this life is over, when Jesus returns, that obedience will be the fullness of your joy. You will delight to stand before and know and worship and obey your God. It will be the deepest delight of your heart. So here in the text, no one made peace with Israel except the Gibeonites, we're told. And they take all the rest in battle. And why did this happen? Why did God do this? It's explicit. Verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. The obvious connection here is Pharaoh. Just as the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh in order to deliver his people and to triumph over their enemies, so also he hardened the hearts of the Canaanites. He gave them over to their sinful pride and rebellion so that they persisted in fighting against him and against his judgments. These are fearsome verses, aren't they? The nature of man's sinful heart is repeated and committed an irrational rebellion against our Creator. It is a rejection of His holiness and reign. It's a refusal to bow the knee and surrender that becomes manifest in God's judgment upon them. It should remind us of Romans 1, 18-25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God is never mocked. Human rebellion is never overlooked. Judgment is sure and certain. That day is fixed and that day is coming. And the time of judgment in today's passage is a picture of that judgment to come. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.